0: Once again, good morning. We will be this morning looking at two more chapters in this wonderful book of Genesis. We'll be looking at chapters 40 and 41. And I've titled the sermon, God Rescues the Dreamer Using Four Dreams. We will see how these dreams will tie together and the purposes of God in the life of Joseph but not just in the life of Joseph, but in many lives. Let's pray. Holy Father, as we approach your word, Father, we ask that you would send forth your Holy Spirit into our hearts, into our minds, that you would give us ears to hear, Father, and that as we hear, you would, Grant us understanding and enlightenment. And Father, that these things that you would have us know about you, you would reveal to us. For you are a great and glorious God. Open every heart here this morning. Grant us repentance in every area where we fail you, Father. And do not let anything in our hearts and minds this morning distract or hinder us from hearing your word, Father. And would you do this for the sake of your church and for your glory? Show us Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. When we left off last week, we saw Joseph being unjustly imprisoned. He had been accused of a crime that he did not commit. And thus, um, was cast into the pit again, or they call the dungeon. We see where he started in the pit with his brothers, and now he's back in the pit—a different kind of pit, but the same word is used in both places. That uh, he was not in a good situation. Uh, we saw that God blessed him, even though he was a prisoner. He went from being a slave to being a prisoner, but in both instances, God continued to bless Joseph, and Joseph rose to prominence even within the prison system there, and that was God's faithfulness. But we also need to look at his imprisonment as maybe something of a good thing. Why was he imprisoned in the first place? Well, he was daily bombarded with temptation. And so God providentially removed him from that situation. Now, we we get caught up looking at, well, it's not fair. He he was thrown in prison, but God knew what he was doing. And Joseph was no longer uh, in that tempting uh, situation. Doesn't mean that Joseph had a good time in prison. Okay, we know that we'll see in, in chapter 40 where he... Pleads to, to get out. We are told because of God, because of his faithfulness, that God always provides a way out of temptation. We, we learned that last week. And Joseph looked around for his way of escaping it. For him, it was the door. He, he fled from this temptation. And so this prison was Joseph's way of escape. Even though it was unjust, God provided this for him. But God is also orchestrating and putting together his plan for his people. And that plan will start here in this prison. Our passage today starts with the words, sometime after this. Referring probably to Joseph's rise in prominence in the prison. We don't know how long he was in prison. We know it was more than two years, because we'll see that in our passage today. Most Bible commentators argue it was probably around 10 years. We don't know how long he was in Potiphar's house before this took place. Today, our Lord willing, we will look at chapters 40 and 41. We will see God using four dreams to rescue his servant Joseph and place him in a position of power, second only to Pharaoh. It is my hope and prayer that as we continue our journey through this book of Genesis, that we will see more and more the absolute faithfulness of God. He is a covenant God, and as such, he's a covenant-keeping God. We as human beings are sinful. Even even when humanity was perfect, they failed to keep God's covenant. But in Christ, the second Adam, God's covenant is fulfilled at the covenant of works, which Adam failed. But throughout history, as we go throughout the Old Testament, we see different God giving, uh, different Covenants, different uh, covenants to different people. And we always see the people that the covenants are given to fail to keep those covenants. But God is faithful, and God keeps his covenants with his children, with his people, with his creation. Chapter 40 opens by telling us of two high-ranking officials in Pharaoh's government being thrown into prison with Joseph, and and Joseph being assigned to care for them, to attend to them, to oversee them, if you will. Chief cupbearer, some, some translations say, Um, chief butler, um, and then the chief baker. Now, these positions were very high and prominent because they personally attended to the pharaoh. The cupbearer was the one who would uh, test the wine uh, to ensure that, one, it was good enough for pharaoh, and two, it wasn't poisoned. And the baker, of course, the chief baker, was the one that was assigned to make all the delicacies that the pharaoh enjoyed. We are not told what offense these two men had done. But we are told that they had angered their master. Here is a good place to contrast these two individuals with Joseph. Joseph was in this prison because he would not sin against his master, but more importantly, he would not sin against God. These men are justly put in this prison because they have offended their master. Whatever their offense, they find themselves in prison with a Hebrew slave. We are told next that they each had a similar dream. Now, all of us dream, right? I would say most of us probably dream, but our dreams are not like these dreams because these dreams were revelation from God, okay? Our dreams to today are not that, I would argue, because we have this as revelation from God. And so these dreams are special. Well, where, where have we seen two dreams before? from a 17-year-old Hebrew boy, this same Joseph. Remember a few chapters ago? He had two dreams. And we will see the significance today of, of two dreams. Joseph, being the good steward that he was, noticed very quickly that these men were in a pickle that they were worried about something. Uh, They were concerned, very concerned. It says they were troubled. They had these dreams, and they they had no idea what these dreams were about. They had no idea what they meant. Now, in ancient Egypt, and as well as many other heathen countries, uh, they had um, magicians and soothsayers and and. People that claim to be wise men that would uh, uh, interpret people's dreams, probably for money. You pay me a certain amount, and I'll tell you what your dream means. Whether it meant that or not, they believe these certain people could could tell dreams, as we'll see in chapter forty-one. But there's a problem. Where are these men located? They're in prison. They don't have access to Pharaoh's magicians and and wise men and soothsayers. And so they have no hope whatsoever of of finding out what these troubling dreams meant. And that's probably why they were so troubled. Now, have you ever had a dream that you just, you know, we call them nightmares, I guess, (laughs) that we just don't understand. It's just really out there and it's, it's puzzling. Well, They're in this situation. We have the, we have the, uh, we don't go to people usually and try to get the meanings of our dreams, do we? We, at least I don't. I mean, if I have a dream that puzzles me, I'll just dismiss it, you know, like, well, it's just a dream. However, these men are used to having people around that would tell them either reassure them or or not uh, the meanings of their dreams and and, and what they uh, had to do. Joseph asks, why are your faces fallen? Why are you troubled? Notice the response in verse 8. They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. That's why they're troubled. I mean, they don't know how long they're going to be in prison. These dreams could, could trouble them for weeks, months, years. And Joseph said to them, now I like his answer. You guys are wanting Pharaoh's magicians to come here and tell you the meaning of your dreams. That's what they wanted. But Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God? And then interestingly enough, he says, please tell me. Joseph is very quick to give credit to the one true God and then ask for them to share their dreams. So let's look at these two dreams. Dream number one. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it had budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to them, to him, this is its interpretation. Now we know that Joseph received this interpretation from God. Okay, Joseph was blessed by God. Joseph knew the significance of dreams. He himself had had two dreams. Now he might not understand if or when those dreams are going to take place and come to fruition in his life. But God gave him these interpretation. This is his interpretation, he says. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. Lift up your head is a a euphemism that uh, you will be brought into the presence of Pharaoh, or you will be brought into the presence of your master. So in three days he will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. So in other words, Joseph says that this dream means that in three days, you're going to be brought into the presence of Pharaoh and he's going to look upon you favorably. And he's going to restore you to your former position. You will once again be Pharaoh's, Chief cupbearer. Well, that's great news for the, for the, the butler, the cupbearer, is it not? Joseph's faith in God made him so sure that the interpretation was correct and would come true is evidenced in the fact that he made a petition of the butler after he gave him his interpretation. He says, Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house or this prison. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. What land? Was Joseph stolen out of? Did it actually belong to the Hebrews yet? No. That shows Joseph's faith in God's promises. God had promised Abraham. God had promised Isaac. God had promised Joseph's father, Jacob, the land. And so Joseph, in faith, calls it the land of the Hebrews. I have been stolen from my land which would not come to fruition until after the children of Israel were enslaved for 400 years and then wandered in the wilderness for another 40. And then they would finally conquer conquer the land under Joshua's rule. But here Joseph displays his faith in God, not only in God's interpretation of the dream, but in God's promise of the land. That would be hard for us to keep this kind of faith, would it not? I mean, you had two dreams, and in your dreams, you were going to be the ruler. You were going to be the prominent one. And then the next thing you know, you're sold into slavery. And then you're wrongly accused, and you're thrown into prison. That would be hard for us to remain faithful, would it not? We would probably spend most of our time questioning God. Hey, what are you doing? Why am I here? But Joseph kept the faith. It's a good lesson for us, dear ones. A good lesson for us is to always keep our faith. In other words, do not let life's circumstances jade your faith in Christ and in the promises of God, because God is faithful. God is faithful. And because of God, because of his faithfulness, we can keep our faith in him. We asked the, a few weeks ago, we asked what the difference between joy and happiness was in one of our lessons. And the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is uh, controlled by our external circumstances. You can be unhappy with your circumstances and still be joyful. Because true joy comes from the Lord. And Joseph, he wasn't happy with his circumstances. And that's why he asks, please remember me when it's well with you. When Pharaoh brings you back into his service, please put in a word for me. I'm not happy with my circumstances. I'm not happy being in here in prison. But I am joyful in the Lord. And I have faith in his covenant promises. Excited about the favorable interpretation that that the cupbearer just had. Now the butler, his lips are loosed. Now, I mean, the, the, the baker, he wants to know about his dream. He says, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. What's what's the interpretation of that? What does that mean? And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Notice that Joseph did not pull any punches. He told the dream, the interpretation, just as God revealed it to him. He didn't try to sugarcoat it. He didn't say, well, you you don't really want to know the interpretation of that dream, do you? I don't think you really want to know this, but he he relayed exactly what God had revealed. Now, we here, we understand why God gave dreams to Joseph, those two dreams, right? We, we'll, we will see that later in this passage. And we understand why God gave these dreams to Pharaoh in the next chapter. But why did God reveal to these two heathens what was going to happen to them? What does that have to do with God's covenant people? Well, God is setting things in motion with these two dreams because it really doesn't concern these men, although it will take place to these two men. But we'll see in chapter 41 where these dreams, especially the cupbearer's dream, is significant and that since the interpretation comes true, he will remember, oh, goodness, Pharaoh, I I have the solution to your problem. And so God is providentially working this out as a precursor to Joseph's rescue from prison. And everything happened just as Joseph had said it would. The cupbearer was restored to his office, serving the king, and the chief baker was executed and hanged on a tree. Some say it would be more accurate to say impaled on a tree. Sadly for Joseph, the chapter ends kind of like it started. It started after some time. That means he's been in prison for some time. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. As soon as he was... Back safe and secure in his position of prominence. That's all that mattered to him. He didn't care about this Hebrew slave. It says he just forgot all about him. Which brings us to chapter 41, where we'll have two more dreams. And we will have a miraculous not a miraculous, but a a, a a rescue from prison because of these dreams. In the first part of chapter 41, the she, the scene shifts now from prison to the palace. We are given the account of Pharaoh's two dreams. Of the failure of all his experts to interpret his dreams. And finally the chief cupbearer, remembering and recommending Joseph to Pharaoh as one who really can interpret dreams. The chapter opens with these words, after two whole years. We could probably say after two long years, if we're looking from Joseph's standpoint. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So it had been two years since the cupbearer was restored uh, to his, his high office in the service of Pharaoh. With only thoughts for his well-being and success, he had totally forgot to mention Joseph to Pharaoh. But our faithful God was about to change that. In one night, Pharaoh had two dreams. He had a dream. He woke up he was puzzled with it fell back asleep, and he had another dream. And then he woke up in the morning, and he was very troubled. He didn't know what the dreams meant. Unlike the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, he, he had access to all of these magicians and soothsayers, and so he calls them all together. All of them who claim to have these uh Abilities to interpret mysteries and dreams and other things. You know, we call this, a, what, what, is, what do we say nowadays? The astrology? Not a, not, yeah, astrologists, right? Not astronomy. There's a difference, right? People that can look at the stars and interpret things and the signs. And, and that's nothing new. That's, that's old. It's um, idolatry. But it's been around for a long time. But unfortunately for Pharaoh, and unfortunately for all these magicians, they, they're not as wise as they think because he tells them the dream. Now, at least he wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar, right? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even tell him the dream. He says, you tell me the dream and then what it means. That way, I know you're not making up some garbage. Right? I mean, these people got paid to, to do this. You tell me the dream, and I can make something up, and it'll sound good. Right? No, Pharaoh tells them the dream, but even then, um, either they were wise enough not to make something up, or they were, they were truly stumped. But for whatever reason, they could not tell Pharaoh the meaning of his dreams. And then we have verse 9. Here's the turning point. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. What offenses is he talking about? Forgetting about Joseph. Joseph had done him a solid. Joseph had done uh, uh, him a favor by telling the interpretation of his dream. And he completely forgot about the favor Joseph had asked in return. And so he relays to Pharaoh, look, you remember when you threw me in prison and I was there with the the chief baker? Well, we too had some dreams. I had a dream and and the chief baker had a dream. and, And there was a young Hebrew man there in the prison. And he was able to interpret our dreams, and that happened just as he said it would. He is able to interpret dreams. And so we see in verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Now, it was the Egyptian custom to be clean-shaven, head and face. We also know it was the Hebrew custom to grow out your hair and your beard. So whether they made him do this or not, I, I, I'm not we're not told, but we are told that jo- Joseph shaved. He, he shaved himself. I would, I would venture to say he shaved his head and his face, probably bathed, put on, took off his prison clothes and put on clean clothes. Uh, he was going in before Pharaoh. And so when he arrived in Pharaoh's palace, Pharaoh said to him, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Notice Joseph's answer. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, wow, right? He hadn't even heard the dream yet. <laughs> he didn't say God can give you the interpretation of your dream. He said God will give you a favorable answer. Notice this humility. No, Pharaoh, I, I can't do that. I don't have that ability. Now, what would Pharaoh think right then, right? What is this? Does it, Do I need to throw this cupbearer back in in prison? Is he lying to me? I mean, he said you could. Joseph says, no, it's not me. God. Not not Ra, your sun god. Not any of your other uh, Nile gods or, or all these other false gods that you have. But Elohim, creator god. We'll give you your interpretation." and a favorable one at that. Notice his complete faith in God. Not even for a moment does he consider taking the credit for himself. You know, he's just been pulled out of prison. Wouldn't that be tempting? If I could prove my worth to Pharaoh, maybe, just maybe, I won't get thrown back in prison. But Joseph, he's not centered on himself. He's not thinking about himself. He's God-focused. In every part of his life so far that we've seen, he's been God-focused. And so Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams. Seven fat cows come out of the Nile River. Start feeding on the Nile grass, the, the grasslands. And then seven lean, uh, heinously, uh, ugly, uh, thin cows, I mean, just just grotesque cows come out. And, And rather than join the other cows and start feeding on the grass as cows do, they eat the cows, the fat cows. But there's no change. You could look at one of those cows after it just ate one of the fat cows, and you couldn't tell it ever had put a bite of food in its mouth because it was just as heinous, gaunt, uh, uh, skinny, ugly as it was prior to eating this fat cow. That would be a pretty disturbing dream. I, I would hate to have a dream like that. Cows aren't supposed to eat meat. And then Pharaoh says, but I had another dream, too. I had two dreams, actually. Because the the second dream was like the first, only it involved corn. Because I saw a stalk, and on it were seven healthy, fat, plump ears of corn. Now, it doesn't say corn. Some, Some translations say grain. I when I think of ears, I think of corn. I would love to grow a corn plant that had seven on it. But there's these very succulent-looking ears of corn. I mean, you would desire to go pick them and eat them, right? But, but what happens? Seven more ears grow out, but they're lean, they're they're Dry and withered and looked like they were blighted by the east wind, you know. And what did they do? Shrivel up, fall off on the ground and just rot? No. They devour the seven plump fat ears. And the same result. You couldn't tell that they were any different than before they devoured the plump the fat ears. And that's disturbing too. No wonder Pharaoh was troubled. And then Joseph tells Pharaoh the meaning of the dreams. He says, there will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of severe famine. A famine so severe okay, that the seven years of plenty won't be remembered. And you see how that that, that fits, right? Because you couldn't tell those seven cows ate the other seven cows. You couldn't tell those seven ears ate the, the fat ears, right? And so this famine is going to be so severe, you're not going to remember these past seven years that were plenty. And then next... We have the definition or the the meaning of the double dreams. Joseph had two dreams when he was 17, right, when he was a young boy. There were two dreams in prison, two different people, but there were two dreams. And then now Pharaoh has two dreams. Why? What's the significance of these two dreams? Joseph says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. And God will shortly bring it about. In other words, it's definitely going to happen. God gave you two dreams of the same thing to tell you that it's going to happen. Your magicians can't stop it. Your various false gods can't stop it. God has said it will happen. But not only God has said it will happen, God will make it happen. And he will make it happen shortly. We can always rely on God to accomplish his will. And nothing can stop it. We can't stop it. All we do is bow to his will and and accept it. And then Joseph goes on now. (laughs) He's going to take the liberty. Right? You know, he just said, okay, it's gonna happen. What else can I do for you, Pharaoh? No, no, no. He shows his wisdom, his God-given wisdom, because he outlines for Pharaoh a plan that will save the nation of his Egypt. Okay, that that will that Pharaoh can use to to protect his country, his his people. And then from 37 to 57, we'll see Joseph's rise to power. Because not only does Joseph give Pharaoh the plan, but uh, Pharaoh's pleased with it. And he asks his wise men, this would be really insulting to these men, right? All these men, wise men that are gathered. He asks them, who, who can we find that's wiser than that? And he has the spirit of God in him. And then he says, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus, he set them over all the land of Egypt. And we would say, aha, this is Joseph's glory moment. Is it? Is it really? I mean, he's been partially vindicated, yes. But is it his glory moment? Well, let's take a look. He's still in a pagan land. Serving a pagan king, he is given pagan wealth in closing. He's given a pagan wife, who, by the way, is a daughter of an idolatrous pagan priest who serves a pagan God. And most importantly, he's still separated from God's covenant community. So is this Joseph's glory moment? And I would say no. No. His glory moment happens when he's reconciled to his brothers and reunited to his family and the covenant community is once again together. This is just a step in that direction. This vindicates him from Potiphar's false charges. But when his glory moment happens, he will be vindicated from his brother's wrath. And the rest of the chapter tells us how Joseph goes about doing all these things that he has advised Pharaoh to do. So what can we take away from this? What, how can we apply this? Well, we'll go take each chapter separately. Now what, I mean, we don't, interpret dreams of what can we do to, you know, how can we apply these passages to our lives? I would say one takeaway from chapter 40 is no matter how dire our circumstances are, we must continue to trust that God is in control. And more importantly, he knows exactly what he's doing. But we can also take something away from Joseph's interpretations of the dreams as Christians and especially as ministers of the gospel ministers of the word of God we must not shy away from always sharing the whole counsel of the truths of the gospel why would we why would we be tempted to gloss over the whole truth I mean to make it less offensive The Bible says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach an offensive message, and yet we are to share this offensive message with all we meet. Joseph didn't gloss over the the bad interpretation. He gave the good, and he gave the bad. Good news, bad news. See where I'm going with this. But what is offensive about the gospel? I mean, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. What's offensive about that? Well, that offends me because that's not the gospel. That's a man-centered, watered-down, false version of the gospel. The true gospel says that we are sinners, that we are enemies of God. No one likes to be called a sinner. No one likes to be called worthless. But that's exactly what we are outside of Christ. I mean, the Bible says of the human race, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. That means we're we're, we're foolish. No one seeks for God. We don't look for him. Uh, or, Or if we do, we're not looking for the true God. You know, it's been rightly said, everybody wants to go to heaven. Most people don't want God to be there when they get there. In other words, they want their own version of it. All have turned aside. Together they have become what? Worthless. Nobody likes to hear that they're worthless. But that's exactly what we are outside of Christ. Now, yes, as human beings, we, there is a sense that we have a worth as image bearers of God but outside of Christ even that is worthless because Christ is the true image of the living God and only as Christians only as those that belong to Christ can we properly bear God's image nobody wants to hear their sinners i'm not as bad as my neighbor he don't even go to church really that's because we want to judge ourselves using our own standards. I, I can look around and find people that are worse than me. And that makes me feel better about myself. But the Bible says I'm worthless. I'm a sinner. I'm an enemy of God. And I have nothing to look forward to outside of Christ, but a justly deserved eternal damnation in hell. That's an offensive gospel, is it not? People don't want to hear that. You know, hey, when I get there, you know, God and I will work it out, right? You know, we'll, we'll see if my good outweighs my bad, right? That, that's, that's a false notion. That's, that's like putting a Band-Aid on a gaping chest wound. That's like instead of going to the doctor to get what ails you fix, you just take some pain medication and ignore it even though you're bleeding out all over the floor, right? The Bible says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21.8. There's no one left out of that list. That includes every human being that has ever walked on this planet except for one, the Lord Jesus. He's the only one that cannot be included in that list. And he's yet the only one that suffered for all of that on the cross. And so that's the bad news. We have to be able to rightly share the bad news. We properly use the law of God to show people their need of the Savior. And I don't necessarily agree with the theology of this statement, but I think there's some truth to it. You have to get a person lost before you can get them saved. If they don't see their need for the Savior, they have no desire to listen to the truth. If I were to tell you, Congratulations. I have just discovered the cure to this deadly disease, this disease that kills people within hours. You'd say, hey, yeah, congratulations, buddy. Whoop-dee-doo. But if I were to tell you, you have this deadly disease, and you're going to be dead in a matter of hours. But I have discovered the cure. Now, all of a sudden, that makes this really good news because you need the cure. And we tell the people that they're sinners, we use the law of God to plow their hearts so that hopefully with the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the power of the living God, when we plant the good news, the good news of the gospel, the seeds, they will grow and become fruit. So the good news of the gospel must be prefaced with the reality of sin and death with the reality of who we are and what we are as human beings. Praying that the Holy Spirit has turned the foul, unproductive soil of their hearts to good soil, we then sow the seeds of the life-giving gospel and pray that God will provide the increase. We all got all, got all that from chapter 40, really from these dreams. (laughs) And so keeping the whole counsel of God's word in view, we share this offensive gospel. Philip Eveson, quoting Matthew Henry, writes, Ministers are but interpreters. They cannot make the thing otherwise than it is. If therefore they deal faithfully and their message prove unpleasing, it is not their fault. Jesus himself said, he had not come to bring peace, but division. That's what the gospel does. It divides. It's offensive. Eveson continues, The true prophets of the Lord were faithfully preaching judgment as well as salvation. Preachers today must not be afraid of proclaiming the news that the wages of sin is death, as well as the good news that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. End quote. And so Paul concludes, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the good news and the bad news. Remember, the saving power is not in the speaker. The saving power is not in my ability to to use fancy words to get my point across. And the saving power is not in the hearer, not in their ability to comprehend and and to put all this together in their minds and to somehow believe the saving power is in the message as God would empower it. Paul wrote emphatically to the church in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, even though it's folly and foolishness and a stumbling block. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Dear ones, don't give up hope. Do You have lost loved ones, lost co-workers, lost friends, and they keep telling you, well, I don't believe that. They can't until God intervenes. Faithfully share the gospel. And, yes, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. Intercede on their behalf. Don't give up hope. God is faithful. And so we have a few, not as many, but a few takeaways from chapter 41. Humility. Joseph practiced humility. As God's children, we are to be humble. God's word says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Joseph is a good example of that. He was humble, and yet at the proper time God exalted him. But we have an even more perfect example of this. Some of you already know where I'm turning. Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he did what? He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that was his true humiliation. This humiliation started in glory. And then he humiliated himself and he became a man. God became a man. The God-man. But that wasn't the end. He humiliated himself to the point of death. And not just death, but the most humiliating death that could take place. And then we have the exaltation. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. All the mighty hosts of God's angels in heaven bow to Christ. All humanity will bow to Christ. And even all the demons in the pits of hell will bow to Christ. Every knee will bow. Why? Because God has highly exalted him. Shame on those people who would try to take away from the exaltation of Christ. Joseph remained faithful to God, not seeking self-advancement. What a witness that was to Pharaoh, and what a witness we can be if we put others before ourselves. The Bible tells us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, right? Humility is a godly trait. Humility can be a great help to sharing the gospel with people. We know we have the only truth, and that can make us a little bit arrogant, right? Rather than being arrogant because we have the only truth. We ought to be humble because, as it has been said, but for the grace of God, there go I. I could be just as lost as that individual. I could be right where they're at now, but God has been gracious to me. And that's a humbling thought. As Christians, our glory moment is not when we're successful here in this life, but our glory moment comes when we are physically and eternally joined to the covenant community of God at the return of Christ our Lord. That's our glory moment. Everything here is just steps, hopefully in that direction. Joseph is a wonderful type of Christ. As a type, he physically saved his family and many Egyptians from a famine. Thus many lives were spared. But it is only the real Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom Joseph points to that can truly save God's people. He came to save us from our sins. He came to reconcile us to God, and he victoriously accomplished all that God sent him to do. But salvation for lost sinners is not an automatic occurrence. It doesn't just happen because God sent Jesus to do this. Everybody's not saved. You know, there's this myth going around this country that all you have to do to go to heaven is what? Die. I mean, really. When have you ever been to a funeral and not heard somebody say he or she's in a better place? You, I've never been to the funeral saying that person's in hell now. Woo. Because it's this false sense of security. All we have to do to get to heaven is die. And that's false. Salvation for sinners Comes through the gospel. And and there is a gospel, there is a Bible commanded, God commanded response to the gospel. And that's repentance and faith. When you hear the gospel, you are to fall on your face before the living God and plead for mercy. And you are to turn from your sins and turn to the Savior. Stop trying to be your own Savior and turn to the one who can truly save you. That's repentance and faith. I would beg you today, if that's not you, then you flee to the Savior now. Dear saints of the living God, we have a wonderful Savior in Christ Jesus the Lord. We don't deserve this great and glorious salvation, but yet he freely has bestowed it on us. I use the inspired words of the Apostle Paul to exhort you here today. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought forth from dead to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. The dominion of sin, dear ones, has been broken. Do not let it rule you anymore. We have a wonderful Savior. And he came to break that sin's dominion. He came to rescue us. And we should be eternally grateful. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for Jesus. Your word tells us that while we were still your enemies, we were still worthless, vile creatures. Christ died for us. And in doing so, he became a very vile creature because he was covered in all of our sins. And yet, because of his sacrifice, you have cleansed us now. And your word promises that you remember our sins no more. You have removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And we are truly blessed because you do not count our iniquities against us. Father, strengthen our faith. Strengthen our walk in Christ. Father, help us to not use this great and glorious salvation that we have as license to sin, Father. But help us to use it to live for your glory. Help us to not be ashamed to share your gospel, the good news and the bad news. Help us to be truthful. We thank you for the promises of your word, Father. And we pray that through them, our faith will be strengthened. Help us now to serve you and to praise you and to glorify your holy name. For you alone are worthy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.